You can turn over in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We're doing a couple topical messages for the holidays, and we'll be starting a a series for Christmas next week. And then after the first of the year, as I told you before, we'll be going into the book of Romans, so we're spending a little time in there. I just wanted to let you know that uh, uh, above and beyond the the, uh, amount for the uh, India trip, and Thailand trip came in, and so we appreciate and, and uh, thank you for your generous gifts and uh, offerings toward that. And we're looking forward to uh, spending a week with the Nelsons in Thailand, and then also uh, several weeks in India um, with our tour guide Sam and little Micah showing us around. <laughs> so we're looking forward to that. And it's more of an exploratory mission, trying to find some uh, churches over there that we could support in India specifically. We already have our missionaries in uh, Thailand. And by the sounds of it, it's going to be a busy time. <laughs> They're already sending out what we're going to be doing and uh, a lot of teaching and, and ministering to the pastors over there. And, and Ambika's going to be able to minister to the ladies. And so uh, pray, for, um, pray for us that we can prepare for that time. It's going to be in February is when we leave. So it uh, should be a good time. We appreciate your generosity toward that. Uh, also, Nagme just, just uh, wrote Ambika this past week and was just overwhelmed with, we were able to give her a little uh, over, I think, uh, almost $9,000 in love offerings last weekend as she was with us. And uh, you have to understand, this, this lady has lost her uh, husband. He's in jail, in prison, unable to work. And so he's really, she's really at the, um, uh, w- waiting on the Lord to provide uh, his freedom, but also provide for her and her family while he's gone. And so uh, it was a, a real blessing that she was able to be here and uh, a real blessing that we were able to help her in that way. But as you turn your hearts to God's word, Philippians uh, chapter 4, and I, I want to talk about thankfulness before Thanksgiving. You know, we always think of Thanksgiving as a time of thankfulness, and uh, but a lot of times we forget th- that we're not supposed to give thanks to the Lord just one day a year, obviously, uh, when we get to stuff ourselves with turkey and all the trimmings. Uh, we're supposed to give thanks to our gracious God uh, every day. It shouldn't be seasonal, but perpetual. And uh, I just want to read out of Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4 down to verse 7. Kind of This will be our focus of our text. We'll also be jumping over to Psalm uh, in a few moments. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. One thing we're, we're told in God's word is that our thankfulness to the Lord should be never ending. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, Paul writes, Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Even in 1 Thessalonians, we know this verse, 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is what? The will of God for you. In Christ Jesus. Um, 
a lot of times we forget that in, in anything, in everything, that we should be thankful. And that means even in trials. That means even when uh, anxious thoughts run through our minds. Um, a lot of people travel when it comes around the holiday season. And uh, I heard an illustration of a family who was going to send their grandmother on her first plane flight across the country to visit her grandchildren. And she just wasn't really keen on the idea. She was in her 80s and never flown before in her life. And she wasn't really uh, confident about the experience of leaving the ground on this (laughs) contraption called a jet airliner. And uh, when they finally met her at the airport uh, on her return after she had two of these flights, uh, one of the family members was kind of joking around with her and, and asked her, well, did the plane hold you up okay? <laughs> and she looked at him almost grudgingly and she replied, well, yes, but I didn't really put my full weight on it. <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of Christians are like that grandmother, it seems. Uh, the truth is that they're being sustained totally by God, right? In Christ, he's totally sustaining us completely, sufficiently. But it seems like we're afraid to put our full weight down on him, so we hold on to things. And as a result, we get plagued with things like worry or anxiety. And uh, we aren't able just to sit back in that chair and relax and and enjoy the flight because we're worrying the whole flight. Uh, I think few of us are strangers to anxiety. We all are faced with anxiety every day almost. Um, And it kind of creeps into our lives. It comes into our lives sometimes over big things and sometimes over little things. But it doesn't really matter whether it's a big thing or a little thing. It seems that anxiety, worry, is always gnawing at us on the inside. Um, Someone said anxiety is like a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. And if encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all others are drained. Um, and today we kind of deal with anxiety and, and we just accept it. You know, we tell people, how you doing? Oh, I'm stressed out. You know, I'm having a panic attack. You know, it's just phrases we use. Uh, and I think that uh, people today deal with anxiety in our society in n- not a good way. They use alcohol, they use drugs, they use uh, different vices to deal with their anxiety, to kind of help, help them forget it. But when you stop and think about your anxiousness and what you're anxious over, it could be finances. Um, how are we going to meet our bills this month? What if the car that I'm driving, the aging car, breaks down? What am I going to do? Uh, what if I lose my job in this economy? Uh, what if I can't find a job if I already don't have one? How am I going to put my kids through college? Um, will I ever be able to save enough for retirement? What if the economy just flat out fails big time? I mean, we've seen it fail some, but what if it just totally fails? So sometimes our finances play into that. Sometimes it's our health, uh, especially as we grow older. Um, 
Sometimes I have the opportunity to, to visit folks in, in convalescent home type settings and you look at some of these folks and your heart just breaks for them. You know, they've fallen victim to Alzheimer's or whatever it might be. Um, what if I'm disabled and have to go into a nursing home? Or maybe you're, you're younger and that's not a worry, but maybe you're worrying about your parents. See, these are very real concerns that we have. Or maybe we're concerned about our own children. Are they going to turn out okay? Or maybe our grandchildren. What do they have to look forward to in this world? Will they avoid drugs? Will they avoid sexual immorality? Will they be safe in this crime-ridden world in which we live? Will they be able to get into college and get a decent-paying job when they get out? Will they finally marry that godly person and live in a happy Christian home? What kind of world will they have? I mean, the list goes on and on. We could sit here for an hour and talk about things that we could worry about. Um, Maybe I caused you to worry just bringing up those things. I don't know. That's not my intent. But I wanted you to know that we all deal with worry, anxiety in a lot of different ways. And, And sometimes, you know what? We can't even really identify a specific reason for anxiety that we may have. I know the other day I was anxious. I came home from the church. My wife said something to me, kind of snapped at her and started calling. She goes, what's wrong with you? Why don't you just go back to bed and get back up and see, if, you know. And I said, you know, I don't know. But I was just anxious. Um, and sometimes that's the case. And see, if we don't learn to deal with anxiety and worry properly, it can really cause all sorts of health problems. Which in turn feed our anxiety it's just a big circle round and round Um, now to those who follow christ he told this to them in john 14 27 jesus promised he said peace i leave with you my peace i give to you not as the what not as the world gives do i give to you let not your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful See, he spoke those those words of comfort, those words of peace on the most difficult night he faced on the earth, the night before his crucifixion. Several times in the New Testament, our God is called either the God or the Lord of peace. And that peace can be a constant experience in the life of a Christian, even in the midst of trials. Even on those darkest, scariest nights, you don't know what's going to happen next. And in Philippians here, Paul tells us how, and I think it's simply this, to experience God's peace instead of anxiety or worry, we should always give thanks to the Lord because His loving kindness is everlasting. There are three key words here that I want to share kind of this morning. Being anxious, prayer, and also peace. Um, Being anxious is something that we're told to put off. And that's the first point there. That we should put off anxiety. We should put off anxiousness. We should put off worry because it is sin. We're told to practice and and to really uh, understand that we need to trust in God. It says there, be anxious, what? For nothing. 
Be anxious for nothing. Well, you don't know my situation. Well, God does. (laughs) I may not. I may not be able to sympathize with you, but God can. God understands. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made it clear that anxiety really stems from a lack of, listen, faith and a wrong focus on the things of this world instead of on the kingdom of God. He points that out in Matthew chapter 6. I mean, sometimes, you know, we use excuses for our anxiety. We say things like, well, it's only human. You know, anybody would feel anxious in this situation. And though that may be true, you're never going to overcome your anxiousness, your worry, if you're going to make excuses for it and not confront it. And namely, the root cause of it is our sin of not believing God and of not seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. Our Christian witness to a lost world is one of Paul's main themes here in Philippians. It's a book of joy. He wants Christians to have God's joy in every situation, not just when they're happy, not just when everything's going well but so they can be an effective witness of Jesus Christ even during the hard times, even during the trials. In other words, we're to be seeking first God's kingdom, not our own happiness. See, we have far too many people today in Christianity looking to Jesus to make them happy. You know, we sang a song this morning, He has made me glad. I'm glad it didn't say He made me happy. I mean, the Scripture says that our relationship with the Lord should make us glad, should give us that deep-seated joy. It's not just a happiness that comes and goes with happenstance, with circumstance. Our focus shouldn't be on our circumstances. Our focus should be on our, our relationship with God. So for the sake of our own testimony, it's imperative that we learn to experience the peace of God, especially when we go through hardships, when we go through trials. This means that when it comes to to the matter of dealing with our own anxiety, our own worry, we must at the outset confront our motives for wanting to have peace. You have to wonder, why do I want this peace? If our reason for wanting to be free from anxiety is so that we can simply live a peaceful, pleasant life, that's the wrong focus. That's a focus on ourself. That's self-centered. We're never told throughout Scripture to be self-focused or self-centered. There are many people who come to Christ because they are anxious and they want the peace that he offers. But they never confront their own sinfulness. See, they have to confront the fact that they are living to please themselves rather than God. And if they do that, they'll simply settle into a self-centered life where they simply use God for their own peace and their comfort. Jesus didn't die, some say, to to pay for our sins. He just died to meet our needs. So if you want your needs met, you need to come to Jesus because he'll he'll make your, your life happy, healthy. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 35, whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake shall save it. See, that doesn't make rational sense in our our minds. 
But the peace Christ offers is a byproduct of allowing Christ as Lord in our lives and living for his kingdom, not our own. You remember the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8, verse 14. And it talks about that seed which fell among what? Thorns. And it really represents those people who have heard the gospel. They've heard it time and time again. And as they go on their way, it says they're choked with what? With the worries and riches and pleasures of this life. And you know what? As a result of that, they bear no fruit to maturity. That word worries there in that text in Luke chapter 8 is a noun and it's related to the Greek verb to be anxious. The scary thing about what Jesus' words is simply this, as I understand the parable, only one of these groups is truly saved of the groups he talks about in the parable. Namely, those who bring forth fruit with perseverance. There's those who profess to believe, but then they get choked out by their worries, by riches, by pleasures. They've never taken themselves off the throne of their life and put Jesus there. They seek their own desires, not the desires for his kingdom. And they're deceived into thinking that they're, that they're believers, that they're Christians. But the truth is they're just living with the same focus the world has. Namely, for personal pleasure and peace. And so when we come to Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it means that, you know, it's not a simple little joke here that, you know, you, you kind of think of this as a formula. Oh, if you're anxious, try prayer, it works. You know, you've heard people try, say that. It's like a bumper sticker kind of mentality. That, it doesn't really mean that. What it means is if you're anxious, you know what? Do something else. Examine your lack of faith in the living God who has promised to supply the basic needs of his children. That's what God has promised us in his word. So if you're anxious, you're really not trusting God in that area. There's a lack of faith. And if it's not a lack of faith, maybe it's a a lack of focus. Maybe you need to examine your focus, whether you're living for Christ and his kingdom, or maybe you're living for yourself. See, whatever the root cause here, anxiety or worry is a sin. It's it's indicating a lack of trust in God. And it must be confessed and put off. Now, before we move on here, Paul isn't encouraging kind of a careless, carefree, uh, irresponsible attitude toward people or problems. He's not saying, you know, just sit back in the armchairs of grace and do nothing. No, he's not saying that. Um, Matter of fact, there's a lot of times when Christians are very anxious people and they, 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 they go from being anxious and they swing and their, their anxiety turns into apathy. <laughs> and all of a sudden this, this guy that's all, you know, uh, kind of wound really tight and always anxious, all of a sudden you see them and it's like they don't even care anymore. You can tell by the way they dress, by the way they keep themselves, they don't care. And so they go from being anxious about all their problems to, you know what, I don't even care anymore. I'm just going to trust God. That's not what Paul's calling here. That's not what Paul's saying. We should care deeply about people. We should care deeply about problems. And we should work hard to resolve them. 
As members of the body here in Christ, 1 Corinthians 12.25 says that we're to have mutual concern, not anxiety, but concern one for another. Even in 2 Corinthians 11.28, Paul mentions the concern that he bears daily for all the churches. Or Philippians 2.20, he tells the Philippians that Timothy is genuinely concerned for their welfare. See, in each one of those verses, the word concern is really from the same kind of word we get anxiousness. But it's not a sinful anxiety, but a proper concern. And you say, well, how do you know the difference? See, it's, it's proper to be concerned about the future welfare to the extent that we take responsibility to plan to save for the future needs. Proverbs chapter 6 talks about that, verses 6 to 11. But proper concern turns into what we would call anxiety, sinful anxiety, when we lack faith in God's role as our sovereign Lord and provider. And when we get to that point, we begin to put the, 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 uh, the focus on ourselves instead of God's kingdom and God's righteousness. So the first step here in dealing with anxiety is to examine whether it's due to a lack of faith or a wrong focus on yourself. Either way, you have to confess both as sin and yield back to God. That's what we're called to do. And the second point kind of gets to the the root of the message here, we must practice prayer with thanksgiving about every concern. Uh, Paul mentions four different Greek words here for prayer. And they kind of almost overlap, you might say. And yet, it's important that we distinguish these. He talks, first of all, the word prayer there. It's a general word for prayer. Uh, always used with reference to God, with the nuance of, of reverence. It's not talking to God as the man upstairs or whatever. No, it's, it's having reverence before a holy God. When Paul says to make our request known to God, the Greek word means face-to-face with God, to come directly before Him. This means when we pray, we must stop to remember that we're coming into the very presence of the holy God that saved us. Where even holy angels cover their faces, and they cry out. Isaiah 6, 3 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And yet he welcomes us genuinely into his presence as a father welcomes his children. See, through our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, God invites us to draw near, Hebrews 4, 16 tells us, to draw near with confidence. Not to be cowering in fear, but to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. And so many times as Christians, rather than go to God in time of need, what do we do? We just wring our hands and we worry. And the Bible says, no, don't do that. That's not going to do any good. Go to the God who cares for you. But we must remember that it is to the throne of the universe, to the sovereign, eternal God that we come. We don't come to a divine Santa Claus. That's not the idea. This means, of course, that we must always examine our hearts. We have to confess our sin, forsake all sin when we come to God in prayer. 1 John 
1, 7 says that we, in, in verse 9 also, that if we confess our sins, that the blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus, is sufficient to cleanse our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we're, we're told to come directly to God in prayer because Christ is our mediator. He's our high priest. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27 indicates and tells us that the Holy Spirit who dwells in every believer prompts and he moves us as we pray. He intercedes for us because sometimes maybe we don't know how to pray as we ought. And so prayer is a personal drawing near to the triune God. I came out of a church that when I prayed, I would pray to God. I'd also pray to Mary, the mother of Jesus. I'd pray to saints. Sometimes they're just memorized prayers that you can rattle off. I can still rattle them off. We don't need to go through a human priest today. We don't need to pray to Mary. We don't need to pray to saints. As believers, we are all priests before God. That's what the Bible says. We're able to draw directly near to him in effectual prayer. Well, the second word he uses there is not just prayer, but he says supplications. And that word gives kind of a prominence to the sense of need. Also looks at specific requests. Some people may ask, you know what, why pray since God already knows what we need? John Calvin said this on prayer. He points out that whatever we need and lack is to be found in God and in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom the Father willed all the fullness of his bounty to abide. He went on to say, it's through prayer that we reach those riches which are laid up for us with the Heavenly Father. See, prayer is not so much for God's sake. It's for our sake. It shows and it indicates a total need for God in our lives. It's not just a a, a need for temporal benefits. We don't just go to God or we shouldn't just go to God when we need stuff. Oh God, get me out of this jam. Oh God, help me with this. Help me pay the rent. Help me do that. That's what I meant by a divine Santa Claus. That's not how we look at God. God wants communication with us. He wants communion with us. And when we can come to him and we cast our dependence on him so that we will seek love and serve him while we become accustomed to every need, we just flee to him. We know that he's there. It purifies our desires when we pray since we must bring them to God himself. It prepares us to receive, thankfully, what he gives us. Being reminded that it comes from his hand. It helps us meditate on his kindness as we delight in what he's given us. It confirms our own weakness and it, it, it gives us uh, God's great providence and faithfulness when he meets our needs. See, and what that means is our supplications, our requests, must be in line with God's will and purpose. See, so many times Christians today say, oh, you just got to pray in Jesus' name. If you just pray in Jesus' name, then it comes true. (laughs) It's like a little formula or something. That's not what praying in Jesus' name means. You don't just tag it on the end of your prayer or the prayer's not complete. 
It's not just something you say at the end of the prayer when you're in a prayer meeting so the other person knows you're done. I mean, that's how I think some people view it. I used this illustration before, but I was actually at our school. Eddie, Eddie went to the school I went to, and I was a brand new Christian, came out of a Catholic background, and we had, it was in the summertime, there wasn't a whole lot of guys there, but they still had RAs lead devotions once a week. And uh, we were down in the, the uh, kind of the, uh, area there, the lounge area, and we weren't sitting in this circle, and, and I was brand new to this, and, and the guy next to me was the RA, and he said, okay, well, let's just, uh, you know, we'll have a Bible study. They did a little Bible study, and they said, well, let's have a time of prayer, and we'll just kind of work our way around the circle, and, and so I was next to him, and so he goes, we'll just go this way, and so I'm like, okay, you know, and so uh, he, he said, well, let's, you know, he started off the prayer, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm praying in my heart, I didn't pray out loud. I felt kind of intimidated. And um, the guy next to me wasn't going to pray till I prayed. Because <laughs> in their mind, you know, you just had to pray out loud. And I'm thinking, I'm praying, and, and uh, I, I just didn't understand how this thing worked. And finally, the RA kind of nudges me. Steve, are you going to pray? Are you going to pray? I'm already done. I already prayed. I don't know what's going on, you know. Oh, oh, well, no, we pray out loud. It took me a little while to get used to that. See, so many times we have this mindset when it comes to prayer that things have to be done in a certain way. Or, or when we come to a prayer meeting and, and we spend, you know, the prayer meetings maybe an hour long and, and we spend 45 minutes telling everybody what our requests are. Kind of a waste of time. Let's just go to God and tell him. He already knows them anyway, but we're instructed to bring them before him. And so supplications need to be in line with God's will and his purpose. The Lord's Prayer is a a wonderful uh, kind of outline of how to pray. Jesus never meant the Lord's Prayer to just be repeated ad nauseum, just kind of saying it over and over again until you don't even understand what you're saying anymore. That's not how you should read that and, and pray that portion of Scripture. There's nothing wrong with praying the Lord's Prayer as we know it there in Matthew 6. But really, he was praying for his disciples. He was giving them an outline of how to pray. Well, the the third thing here is thanksgiving. He says, when you're anxious, presumably you're in a situation that may cause a little bit of anxiety. And at such times, Paul says, you know what? I understand thankfulness is not automatic. It's not spontaneous. You have to do it deliberately by faith. Sometimes when we're praying for a meal, we're praying by faith, right? Because we're going, what is in this stuff that we're about to eat? I think sometimes our prayer of thanksgiving, should, we should wait till the end of the meal. And then at least it would be genuine. We'd know what, whether it was worth being thankful for or not. But sometimes we have to pray for the food we're going to eat. Sometimes it doesn't do any good either, you know. Lord, bless these, these Twinkies to the nourishment of my body. Well, that's not, gonna, that's not a prayer God's going to answer. All right? As I chug lug this liter of Pepsi, you know, bless it to the... It's not going to work. All right? So Thanksgiving, sometimes we have to be aware of that. But Thanksgiving, in times of trial, it should reflect three things. Remember what God's supply has been in the past. Always go back to how God has faithfully provided for you. Think back over his faithfulness up to this point. And then you begin to realize, wow, his his mercies have sustained you. 
See, sometimes we can just react in the, in the midst of a trial or a situation where we're in a time of need and we, we kind of freak out like a panic attack, right? Well, we're not focusing on God's past uh, supply for us, his faithfulness. He never abandons or forsakes his children. I mean, even if we, we face persecution or death, it's for his sake. I mean, I think often, having met Nagme last weekend, a lot about Pastor Saeed, and I often wonder, as I'm praying for his safety and his release, I'm wondering, what, I wonder what he's doing right now. I mean, are they beating him up? Are they torturing him? Is he in fear for his life from the other prisoners in his small cell? I mean, here I am sitting here, you know, drinking a Pepsi, watching a ball game, and it kind of pops in my mind, and I'm thinking, wow, I wonder what he's doing. I mean, we, we don't even understand what persecution is. But I'm sure that part of what he's doing is remembering God's faithfulness to him in the past, even as he goes through all that. Secondly, we need to be submissive to God's sovereignty in the present. We need to thank God in the middle of a crisis and say, you know what, Lord, I don't understand why this is happening, but you know what, I'm going to submit to your sovereign, divine purpose in this situation. I trust that you know what you're doing, and and all this is somehow going to work out. We're not just to thank God when we feel like it, but we're also to thank God when we don't feel like it. We read 1 Thessalonians 5.18. So important that we understand that. And then thirdly, their trust in God's sufficiency. Not just his sovereignty, but trust in his sufficiency for the future. When, you're, when you have a thankful heart genuinely before God, it rests on the all-sufficient God. Knowing that even though we don't know how he's going to work this out, how he's going to do it, that he promises that he will meet our every need as we cast ourselves on him. In Jeremiah 32, 17, it's, it's a very neat uh, a verse. Jeremiah is shut up in prison, as you recall. And Nebuchadnezzar was besieging Jerusalem. It was about to fall. And in that situation, the Lord told Jeremiah to do something that everyone thought he was just crazy for doing. And he was to buy a field from his uncle in the middle of a war zone. I mean, anybody with any common sense knows you don't sink your money in real estate into a country that's going to be overrun by a tyrant. But God wanted to show his people that houses and fields and vineyards shall again be brought into this land. That's what he says in Jeremiah 32, 15. And then in verse 17, he says, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Jeremiah 32, 17. Jeremiah was trusting in God's sufficiency for the future. He was going to be obedient. This doesn't make sense to buy this property, especially in the middle of this war zone at this time. It it just doesn't make good common sense. It doesn't make logic. But you know what, God? I'm going to be obedient, and I'm going to trust you for the future. Sometimes God doesn't show us everything we need to see at once. He doesn't show us all the trials that we may be going through. He doesn't show us sometimes. I remember the first church I was at in as a youth pastor, First Baptist Church right across the bay, Fremont. And uh, brand new kind of ministry, just graduated from Christian Heritage College and came up here and uh, 
I was working with a, a pastor who was very, very, very conservative. I mean, um, they had a bus ministry, and we'd go to Hayward and pick up kids in a, in a bus. And, and, you know, part of my job was to uh, run the bus ministry, and part of that job was to take care of the buses, so I had to change the oil and all that stuff. And I never believed the Saturday he said, okay, well, tomorrow I'll show you how you go about uh, maintaining these vans and buses. And, and so uh, uh, meet me at the church at 8 o'clock and we'll change the oil and everything. I get there and I got, you know, dungarees or holy. And, you know, I'm thinking, hey, we're going to be working with oil and grime. This guy shows up. He wasn't in a suit, but he had his tie on. And he literally changed the bus with his tie on. I just sat there going, man, what planet are you from? I'm a real nice guy and, and worked with him for, you know, two, three years there. And he taught me a lot. Uh, but he was just way, way, way conservative. And, and I don't just, I mean more kind of almost maybe in a legalistic fashion than what I was used to. And uh, I remember the first couple, couple weeks there thinking, wow, this is, it's like, it's like going to college all over again. When I first went to Christian Heritage College, I was really into music and had some keyboards and had all this music, uh, Kansas and sticks and stuff like that, and had them all in this big locker, and I put them in my room and got all my equipment got there later when I first got there, and, and I unpacked it all and got the music jamming in the, in the dormitories there, and uh, the RA's knocking on the door. What are you doing? Listen to some music. You can't listen to that music here. Why not? It's not Christian music. Really? What kind of school is this? Oh, no, you, you can't do that, you know. So I took all the records and put them away. And then I went to a local Calvary chapel, and I heard a guy by the name of Leon Patillo, who used to play with Santana. He played keyboards, and, and I got to see him in concert. And, man, I just fell in love with this guy. I thought, man, that's what I want to do. That's really cool. So I remember buying this CD, and I took it back to the college. I put it in, or is it tape, actually, or LP? Put it in there and started the thing up. And a couple minutes, the RA, Converse, I thought I told you you couldn't listen to that music. You know, no, 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 this is Christian. This is Christian music. Look, and I showed him the album, and he's like, it has a beat. I'm like, what? You can't listen to music that has a beat in this school. I'm like, Every music has a beat. What are you talking? Where am I at? Help. I mean, I was just, I felt like I was like a total foreigner. And, you know, my years there, God kind of fashioned and, and used all. I didn't know how that was really going to turn out. And, and when I went to this church, First Baptist, having survived the college I went to, it was like the whole thing over again. I remember in my car, pulling into the parking lot, listening to, uh, I think it was the Imperials or something, one of their songs. And the pastor came, what are you listening to? It's like, oh, it's Christian music. It's God. Oh, that's, 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 we, don't, we, don't, we don't want to encourage that kind of music. I'm like, oh my gosh, where am I at? And it was all over again, see? But we have to come back and we have to remember that, you know what? We have to have faith. Sometimes our present circumstances, we don't think it's going to work out. I mean, I remember thinking, man, maybe I should just leave this church tomorrow. The one I was at over there. And just thinking, yeah, you know, I don't fit in. It's not going to work out. But God had a plan. God had a purpose. And I just fell back and said, you know what? I'm just going to be con- continually trusting in God. And he did. I was there uh, five years. And God really used me there. And he used that church to really um, give me a good foundation to build ministry on. But the last thing here, the, the fourth thing, the fourth word really is the idea of requests. Of requests. And... Um, 
he points out here, this word really kind of overlaps with supplications, but it, it emphasizes more of a specific, um, definitive nature of our request before God. And, and sometimes, you know, when we come to God in prayer, I don't know if we're afraid to do it or if we just don't know to do it, but I think God would like us to be specific. Sometimes I've heard prayers from people that are so generic it's like, what does that even mean? And it's almost, you hear children pray that way. And, and from their point of view, it's just a childlike faith. But do you want to pray, little Susie? Sure. Okay, go ahead, you pray. God, just bless the whole world. Well, that's a cute prayer. But when you hear adults pray like that, you kind of go, wait a minute. Where, where's the depth here? Bless the whole world. That's, that's not really a, a correct prayer. And so Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 tells us, Ask and it will give, be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it shall be opened. And he goes on in that illustration and he says, you know what? He talks about a boy asking his father for a loaf of bread. But the dad gave, won't give him a stone. You know, that would be kind of a cruel father. Uh, if he asks for a fish to eat, the dad won't give him a snake even though some people do eat snake. They say it tastes like chicken, I guess. Go figure. I don't know. Everything tastes like chicken. But Jesus concludes, you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more shall your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? See, we need to ask the father. And if it's good for you, he will give it to you. And we have to be okay with that. Sometimes we fail to ask specifically because maybe... They seem too trivial or, you know, too small of a, of a uh, request before God. I was reading this past week of a quote by the G. Campbell Morgan, who was just a wonderful uh, English Bible teacher. And uh, a woman asked him one time, do you think we should pray about the little things in our lives or just the big things? And I love his answer. His answer was this. Madam, can you think of anything in your life that is big to God. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's, that's a good answer. So when it comes to your being anxious, we need to come to God in reverent, humble, specific, thankful prayer. Now, I want you to look over into Psalm 136. And we'll, we'll close, begin to wrap this up here a little bit. But I think we're we're not just to put off anxiety because it's sin. We, we also have to practice prayer with thanksgiving about every concern. But we're always to give thanks to the Lord because his loving kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting. When you have the time and you read through the whole entirety of, of Psalm 136 there, um, what's, what's interesting is that that phrase, that command to give thanks is repeated in verses 1, 2, 3, 26. I mean, each time with the same reason. Give thanks, why? For his loving kindness is everlasting, over and over. And so this psalm is, is appropriate for as we enter even into this Thanksgiving season. And it's unique in this unique psalm, it's, it's that same refrain 
is repeated over and over and over and over. Um, the only thing close to it is in Psalm 118, when he, he repeats there in Psalm 118, verses 1 to 4, his loving kindness is everlasting. It says it over and over. But the Jews call this the, the great halal, the praise. And it was especially sung at Passover. And it's, it's important that we understand that we give thanks to God because his loving kindness is everlasting. I think that, that phrase, when it's repeated over and over in that psalm to us, it really teaches us to praise the Lord um, in a proper fashion. In other words, we must acknowledge that everything we receive from Him is bestowed by His grace. The reference there to, to God's strong arm, strong hand and outstretched arm in verse 12 comes from Deuteronomy. There's a lot that comes from Deuteronomy. There's a lot in this psalm that comes from other portions of Scripture. And really, the, the, the lesson there for us is to show us how important it is for us to know Scripture, even the Old Testament. And I think it's, it's important that we respond to trials and other situations in our lives with with biblical thoughts and biblical language. And the only way to do that is to hide God's word in our hearts. Spurgeon once said of John Bunyan, great man of faith, he said, if you prick that man anywhere, his blood runs bibline. Just Bible just flows out. See, that's, that's how we should be. He meant that Bunyan is so full of the Bible that it just runs through his veins. The stories in the Old Testament that Psalm 136 alludes to were written for our instruction. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that. uh, That we should not crave evil things as, as they did or be idolaters or try the Lord or grumble. Um. And I think that if you're not familiar with some of these stories there that are represented, it, it, you're not having your worldview shaped in a way that would honor the Lord. But you can divide this, this little psalm into three sections, basically. The first is the call to give thanks. And he says, give thanks to God for his goodness and sovereignty, which displays his everlasting love. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good for his Loving kindness is everlasting. That word give thanks in the Hebrew means to confess or to acknowledge. So it calls us to really thoughtful, grateful worship, spelling out what we know or have found out about God's glory and His deeds. And the first reason there is that He's good. (laughs) It says He is good for His loving kindness is everlasting. Um, God is only originally good. He's good of himself. Uh, he, he can't be compared to someone else. That's hard for us to understand because our goodness is a comparison to someone else. But that's not the way God. God is completely good in and of himself. And so we need to be willing to give thanks for his goodness. And he is truly good to us. And then secondly there, it says the cause for giving thanks. Why should we give, give, give thanks to God? Because of his power and creation and salvation and his provision. And it displays his everlasting love. 
Do you ever go out? Recently, we've had some clear nights here, and you go out early in the morning, maybe before the sun's up, and uh, it's kind of quiet, and you look up into the sky, and you see all those stars. It's just amazing. I mean, that's the, the wonderful creation of God, and it's the glory of God on display. Remind yourself of that. The next time you're taking a drive over to the coast and you're looking at the power of those waves crash against the, the seawalls and the, the rocks and, and you're thinking, man, this is, just, this is just the power of God on display. Give thanks to God this Thanksgiving season for his power in creation. It definitely displays his glory. Paul writes in, in Romans Chapter 1, verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood, look at what it says, through what has been made, so that you're without excuse. When you stop and you think of the people that don't believe in God, they claim to be atheists, and they look around and Say, oh, uh, this was all as a result of evolution and, you know, man-centered whatever. If you haven't seen that little DVD back there, Evolution versus God, I, they're free. You can take one. Uh, it's a wonderful little way to share the Lord with people. Uh, I'm going to get them out down at the coffee shop. We have some teachers that come in there and things. So I'm going to put a little bow on them and give them to for Christmas. And uh, we gave one to one of the, the doctors that uh, is kind of a, holistic kind of a doctor and uh and because i go to him once in a while and uh, i gave him this uh dvd and they said hey you might want to check this out he's always talking about how we come from the ocean and all this stuff so they check this dvd out so i'm kind of curious he's a jewish jewish man so it'd be interesting to see his take on that but we also give thanks for god's power in saving his people right i mean that displays his everlasting love I mean, you know, I listed there basically uh, five aspects of God's saving power. That first of all, his saving power is a particular love. Um, You know, when you stop and you think of of God's love and how he saves us, he doesn't save us generally. The the, the, uh, atonement of Christ on the cross was specific. He died for you. He died for me. He died for our sins. And there's people today that want theology going around. Oh, no, no. He just you know, died for everybody. Well, no. Even in the word of God. I mean, God saved Israel because of his sovereign, gracious choice of Abraham. Who, by the way, was an idolater living in an idolatrous city and his covenant promises to him. Um, Paul lays out very clearly, and we're going to go through this when we go through Romans eventually, uh, where he shows how God loved Jacob and what? Hated Esau, verse 13. Um, That's, you know, we we can't look at that and go, well, that's not fair. Well, no, our God is a just God. And even there in Romans 9, Paul retorts when asked the question, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? In other words, we have to trust in God's divine plan. And as a divine potter, God can show mercy to whom he chooses. 
and he can leave others as to become objects of his wrath, that even those are for his glory. I don't completely understand that. I would never claim to completely understand that. That's all in the mind of God, but that's what the word of God says. Secondly, God's love does not negate his judgment of the wicked. We mentioned this several weeks ago, but many argue that God's love means that everyone will be forgiven and saved. Well, that's not true. That's universalism. That's not true at all. Many deny the doctrine of eternal punishment because they think somehow it negates God's love. But the Bible clearly affirms both God's love and his righteous judgment. I refer you to Romans 9 once again. Third thing there, God's love for his people is secure against all enemies. This should help us uh, sleep tonight. Nothing can thwart the love of God for his enemies. And he, he kind of points out there, uh, Psalm 136, verse 12, no one can stand against his strong hand and outstretched arm. Jude 24 says he is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. In spite of yourself, God is going to be faithful. In spite of your own unwillingness to cooperate with him, he's going to be faithful. And he will, if you're truly in him, if you're truly a Christian, he will bring it to pass. That's why Paul says that he who, uh, being confident of this very thing, he who has began a good work in you will what? Complete it. Fourthly, to appreciate God's everlasting love, you must be brought low. You must be brought low. The problem with sharing the gospel today is a lot of people aren't confronted with their sin. They're just confronted with how Jesus can meet their felt needs. So they hear all this good stuff about Jesus. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out, yeah, I guess I want that. (laughs) But they fail to talk about denying yourself. They fail to talk about forsaking your sin. They fail to talk about how your sin grieves God. See, when you talk about those kind of things, that brings you low. You're not going to win friends and influence people with talk like that. But that's what Psalm 136 points out in verse 23. God remembered us in our low estate, referring to their bondage in in, in Egypt there. And so it's very important that we understand that before we can understand God's love, we have to be brought to a point where we appreciate God's love. And then the last thing here, quickly, you cannot save yourself or deserve salvation. Only God can save you by his grace and his power. Uh, No more than Israel could have escaped from Egyptian bondage if God hadn't exerted his power on their behalf. It's a perfect picture. They would have died in the wilderness if he had not sustained them. They would have been destroyed by their many adversaries if he hadn't rescued them. And you know what? It would have been absurd for Israel when they reached the promised land to say, you know what? Hey, we got here on our own ingenuity, our own effort. We made it here by ourselves. Hey, high five. No. They realized that it was only through the grace of God. And I'm telling you this morning, the biggest hindrance to salvation is the notion that somehow you can do something to save yourself. If you think that you're good enough or that you deserve salvation, guess what? You don't get it. Only God can save you from your sins, and he does it apart from anything that you can do. 
It's very clear. It's not by the will of man. It's by the will of God. We simply receive it as a gift of faith. Gift by faith. So the psalmist really shows two causes for giving thanks to God. His power in creation and in salvation he displays his everlasting love. But he also says give thanks for God's provision of food for all creatures which displays his everlasting love. In verse 25 in Psalm 136 alludes to God's promise to Noah after the flood to sustain all flesh. I mean, we read in the New Testament where Jesus teaches, hey, if God cares for this little sparrow when he hops from branch to branch and he's concerned, don't you think he's going to take care of you? One of his children that, that Christ died for he paid a dear price to secure your salvation? And I think every time we do take a bite of food, every time that we do eat, as Christians, we should pause and give thanks to the Lord. Whether you're at a restaurant or whether you're at home, it makes no difference. And then he closes out here a final call to praise. He says, give thanks to the God of heaven there in verse 26, 136, for his everlasting love. That title, the God of heaven, is kind of interesting. It only occurs here in the Psalms. It's used other places. It's used nine times in Ezra, ten times in other books, four other times in the Old Testament. It's used twice in the book of Revelation. And it points to God's sovereignty. He rules the heaven, which he made, and he rules over it. And we're to give thanks in the midst of our difficult trials, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, and we're to submit to his sovereign hand. We're promised, last point, God's incomparable peace, incomparable peace when we pray. I think we really need to be reminded that, you know, when we're filled with anxiety, and, and worry is keeping us up late at night. And, and we need to stop and we need to say, hey, wait a minute. What's, what's Philippians 4, 7 say? The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, all comprehension. What's it going to do? It's going to guard your heart. It's going to guard your mind. It's going to do that in Christ Jesus. This isn't some kind of psychological game, peace gained through some kind of coping technique. That's not what we're talking about. There's some Christian psychiatrists that give you all sorts of common sense and then they throw in it psychological methods alongside of the spiritual so that maybe they can kind of mix them up and alleviate your anxiety or whatever. I think it's just disguised transcendental meditation, to be honest. Paul here is talking about a peace that comes from God who is never subject to anxiety because he is the sovereign, omnipotent creator and the Lord of the universe. Do you know nothing takes God by surprise? Nothing? You go for that doctor's visit and you get that bad report. Don't think God's up there going, oh no, what am I going to do now? No. He knew before you ever even went to the doctor what was going on. Or maybe you go in next week and your boss says, sorry, can't, can't afford to keep you on anymore. What? It's right before Thanksgiving, right before Christmas. You're going to fire me now? You know why? God knows that. 
He's going to meet your needs. He's going to take care of you. Because just as we are his real children, he's our real father. So I, I pray that as we enter into this Thanksgiving season, and Thanksgiving quickly gives way to the Christmas season, and pretty soon, boy, you're in the mix of it. And you got no time on your hands, and you got all these dinners and festivities, all the stuff going on, and the anxiety begins to build up. I pray that God will bring you back to this passage of Scripture in Philippians and remind you that God wants us to be thankful, even in these hard times, and the peace of God will rule and reign in our hearts. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask that you would just uh, continue to uh, mold us and shape us into the image of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, sometimes you do that through trials. Sometimes you do that through hardship. Sometimes you do that, as we spoke of last week, through suffering. And Father, we, to be honest, don't like it. But Lord, that's what you have for us sometimes. And we have to be willing to walk that walk of faith, even through those hard times, knowing that you will protect us, you will give us the strength we need, you will give us the endurance, you will help us to persevere to the end so that one day we will be glorified and saved. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who is yet to trust you as their Lord and Savior, to place their faith in you, to save them. Lord, I pray that they would understand that this isn't about playing church, it's not about being religious. It's about securing your destiny in Christ. It's about understanding that one day all of us will leave this place, we'll die, we'll give up our last breath, our heart will beat its last beat, and our body will grow cold. And hopefully family and friends will stand around a grave, and they'll put you in the grave, God bless you, and they'll go on with their life. But we'll be dead. But the soul doesn't die. There's an eternity beyond this life. And the only thing that dictates where you spend eternity, heaven or hell, is what you do with God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that if this is a question for you, that you will cry out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner, that I know that Christ is real, that I desire his forgiveness in my life. Be merciful to me, God. Help me to turn from my sin and turn to the Savior. That's what he wants to hear. And when that comes from a sincere heart, he will truly save that person completely, forever. Father, we thank you and we pray that we would have a safe week and that you would just bless our time even on Thursday as Thanksgiving comes around and and we spend it with family and friends. Lord, we pray for anyone who may not uh, have um, family or friend to spend time with, Lord, that you would uh, uh, bless them uh, with... um, friends maybe, or or somebody that could reach out to them, Lord, that they would not be alone this holiday season. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.